is a, sen a sensory rich environment <coughs> like Times Square a better f better for vipassana than solitary confinement why don't you take the middle path I would say the middle path is a, a better environment. Because you're not always in Times Square, and you're not always in solitary confinement, but most of the time you're somewhere in between, right? In your neighborhoods, or in, your, in, the, in the town, or the, even in your own house, if you got some kids or something. So, uh, but this solitary confinement, uh, maybe some of the most uh, extreme ones, but as far as prisons go, there's more noise in a prison than in, in Times Square. Uh, Anyway, for Vipassana, that's why I don't necessarily recommend too quiet of a place uh, for meditating or to have like the perfect place devoid of any noises because, you know, that's artificial. And you've got to train yourself to, uh, you know, learn how to deal with, put up with, and eventually just, you know, let go of, uh, you know, any types of uh, sensory impingements, wherever they arise. And we don't know when or where or what is ever going to arise around us. So to, you know, practice meditation in all kinds of different places is, is a good training. When I was uh, first practicing, I was in India of all places. Now that's a good place to meditate. <laughs> meditate in, in the Calcutta Howrah meditation uh, uh, train station. If you can meditate there and keep your mind, then you can meditate anywhere in the, on earth. And I used to have a, a little uh, practice it's called meditation on a dime. And that was a practice where, you know, just going around or at any time, you know, somebody said, oh, let's sit to meditate. Okay, boom, immediately. Just sit down and sit for one hour, not move, no matter where it was, in a train station or uh, anywhere. And that you should be able to sit down and just endure whatever might be going on, uh, you know, for a certain period of time. Maybe not a whole hour, but anyway, some time. And not say, oh, I can't meditate here. It's too noisy. Or it's too hot. Or it's too cold. Or too many mosquitoes. I used to also deliberately meditate in places where there's lots of mosquitoes. And let them bite me. And other things. Uh, to overcome that kind of fear and just learn how to 
uh, tolerate them. Because, you know, everybody's waiting for the perfect place to meditate in the right conditions, and you rarely ever find them. So that's why people keep uh, on excusing why they can't meditate. Well, it's too noisy in here, or it's too this or that. So, you know, it's good to meditate in uh, different types of environments and not be too attached to have a, the, you know, a quiet place and so on. Although, you know, try to find a place again that's middle path, not absolutely uh, quiet necessarily and, and you know, not uh, total chaos. Now for shamatha meditation, yes, you need, uh, normally you need a very quiet place because there thorns are the enemy and, and other distractions are considered, you know, the enemy because you're trying to just stay on one tiny object, but in Vipassana that's not uh, the case. How can I know if I'm suppressing my anger and disappointment or in denial? Uh, well, you know, it, it takes a, a lot of uh, practice to be able to make that discernment. And in the beginning, we, we may uh, be suppressing sometimes some of our uh, emotions in certain uh, situations. But normally in you know, mindfulness practice, we allow the emotion to come up like uh, anger. And we, we know that we're angry. We acknowledge it. Okay, this is anger. And feel what it's doing. You feel what, what, what it's doing in the body. Your muscles are getting tense. Uh, or your, some heat is arising. Or your stomach is tight. Or, you know, there's always symptoms normally. Some uh, physical symptoms to many of our emotions. Especially like anger and so on. So you observe them. And you go, okay, you know, okay relax. And then you say, well, why, you know, again, analyze that. Why am I getting angry? Uh, and so on, and uh, <clears throat> but you know, like lashing out on the anger, that's usually not as skillful. So in a way, you might have to, in a certain situation, like if you're confronting an individual, you know, and some negativity and and so on, then you know, really, you know, you have to monitor the those sensations and, and thoughts that are in your mind, but also you don't want to, you know, like lash out or just, you know, get into a you know, heated, angry argument with uh, somebody because usually that doesn't really help much either. So at certain times, it might be necessary to kind of just, you know, suppress, let's say, lashing out or... It, you know, a situation like that, uh, but then, uh, you know, later on, uh, deal with it. Uh, like, especially if two people are both angry and trying to, you know, sh 
that never works. No problems are ever solved out when people try to solve the problem in the midst of their emotions. They've got to first pause and stop and calm down, cool down, and so that they can more uh, clearly see the situation and then try to talk more uh, calmly from a, a more calm space. But then again, the, the, the emotions might get churned up again. So you've got to con con constantly monitor yourself. And, uh, you know, maybe the other person isn't doing that. Maybe they're the one. But, uh, you know, try not to react to somebody else's anger. Because usually it takes two to tango. And so, you know, people want feedback from others. So they might getting angry from you and expecting a response, but if you just kind of remain passive and, you know, they might continue for a few moments, but then because you're not giving them any feedback, they, you know, they may just calm down and, and go away. Or at least you won't fan their flames more by uh, retorting to them. Like one time I was... Uh, I was uh, in a park in Los Angeles at a Hare Krishna uh, big uh, kind of uh, rally they were having in a park, you know, and, and I just went there because I was down at the at the beach anyway, and I was just walking through, you know, like like I am, you know, and uh, there was three guys sitting over on a bench, and they were inebriated, you know, they had. Beer cans in a, in a paper bag, <laughs> and uh, and then they saw me, you know, and then they started talking to each other, and they started, you know, how inebriated people kind of behave, right? And and then two of them were egging the other guy to come over to me and, and harass me. So this one guy <laughs> came over to me and kind of got in my face, and he was. He was trying to look around to find my Hare Krishna ponytail. <laughs> I didn't have one. <laughs> he thought I was a Hare Krishna, you know, because they have little ponytails like that. <laughs> and uh, so, and, and the, uh, the, those guys were saying, his two friends were saying, hit him, hit him, you know, and the guy was kind of like, you know, giddy. but I was just standing there, kind of just vibing him, you know, kind of sending him at the, you know. You know, may you be peaceful, may you calm. Not loudly, just in my own, quietly. And I wasn't reacting. You know, I wasn't like showing any type of uh, fear. And the guy kept on provoking, like wanting to see some response, but uh, I was just not responding. And the other guys were egging him on to, you know, push me or whatever, or pull off my robe or what. I don't know. But uh, anyway. Little by little, he kind of just calmed down and he, he, he you know, backed away and he, he went away, you know. And so I, I've encountered these kind of situations a few times because, you know, this is a kind of a target for some, some kind of people. So anyway, so, you know, there's all kind of situations you may get in when you have to rely on your, you know, kind of instincts and in your practice to not to, you know, get into it. And another time, I was walking down the street, going to a temple in the, this uh, Crenshaw in Los Angeles. It's kind of a seedy area, but there was a Buddhist temple there. 
And I was walking down a street, and I was wearing my sandals and had a freshly shaven head, you know, in my robe. And, and then there was three, three guys, big uh, African-American guys, uh, standing there, you know, shucking and jiving, if you know that term. <laughs> you know, playing their boombox. They had a car stopped on the side of the road and playing uh, rap music. And they saw me coming, and they blocked the street. They 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 blocked the sidewalk, you know, standing blocking the sidewalk, which is the only place I could walk. So I was just kept walking, you know. And I saw them, okay, I just kept walking mindfully. And then I got up about you know uh, six feet from them, and then just sort of paused and stopped. And then I. I put off, mindfully put off my sandals. And then they said, okay, man, it's cool, it's cool. They thought I was kung fu, and I was, I was, getting, I was getting ready to fight. Because <laughs> I don't know kung fu. I was pulling their bluff, you know, I was kind of calling their bluff. <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> because, you know, they're all watching the kung fu movies back in the day, you know. The television shows and all that. So in a way, they kind of helped me, <laughs> and they opened up, <laughs> they let me through. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so, you know, there's all kinds of situations you may find yourself in, and uh, in terms of how you're going to react in, in uh, various situations. Would you speak a little more about the process and techniques of releasing attachment to the five aggregates and moving into pure awareness during the meditation? You know, it's, it's just practice, 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 and it's also cultivating those three levels of wisdom. First, knowing what the aggregates are, being able to identify them very quickly in your meditation, you know? Just make, make that, uh, you know, a whole meditation uh, in itself. You know, you sit down and say, okay, I'm just gonna focus on trying to identify. Okay, you're feeling the body, right? Okay, that's the material aggregate, the four elements, hardness, softness, heat, the body. Sounds of the material element, visible vibrations of the material element, smells, tastes various uh, sensations. So, uh, you know, when you hear a sound, it's just, uh, you know, it's a sound element. And when you hear, see a feeling, you, you, you feel your mind kind of cringing because of a, a sting or an ant crawl biting you or pain or, you know, just a oh, painful feeling. Or if there's a pleasant feeling, you feel the cool breeze on your skin on a hot day, and you can kind of see that tendency for a pleasant feeling. Okay, pleasant feeling. Then how does it affect your mind? And the perception. You hear a sound, the mind identifies, oh, that's a bird, that's a this, this. Okay, perception, perception, perception. And you keep on uh, training yourself 
And then a reaction. You see, then the reaction, you want to think about some sankara, sankara, habit formation. Or if you, if you move the body or scratch, okay, sankara. And you understand how every time you practice those, it strengthens the habit. And then, of course, the ego consciousness. So it's not that difficult. But you, you, know, you have to basically kind of learn those simple, <laughs> you know, words and then understand how they affect you. What, what kind of a grip do these things have on your mind? And so you, you have to study that. And then, uh, uh, you know, not all the aggregates are bad. We have to use them in the daily life and we have to, you know, do a lot of things. So it's, but it's understanding the, the ones that get, trip you up, you know, the ones that, because of the attachment, you get attachment because you think these aggregates are, are you. But instead we see these aggregates as simply conditioned phenomena. They're not really uh, in the deepest sense uh, mind because they happen by themselves. See how these things arise by themselves. You're not doing that. You're not asking that painful feeling to arise. You're not asking that perception to arise. It happens automatically. Uh, and so you, you study them. And, and then because of that, the mind will stop reacting to them so much. And when you stop reacting to them so much, then gradually this buffer zone of awareness uh, arises, this, this kind of space between the knower and the known that I talked about today, right? You stop jumping right to the, to the known, you know, you, you create that buffer zone where you start to, then the awareness is there in the middle. When you stop reacting to the, to the object, then, and there's just the observing, that's when you start to actually uh, feel the sense of that just awareness without the, all the, reactivity and so on. And then, and, and as you do that more and more and more, that just, you know, that deepens and deepens. And then finally, because of that, the, the sense of self will begin to, you know, fade away. And you can understand how, you know, there's a different, there's ego consciousness and then there's awareness, or what we call pure awareness. Uh, And there's a Pali term for that, anidasana vinyana, which is signless consciousness. But it's, it's basically that kind of just pure awareness. It's not creating any signs or marks about the objects uh, and so on. So the consciousness has the ego with it. But when that ego fades away, or not very active, at least the way I use the terms, then I like to call it awareness. Uh, so, but really consciousness and awareness are the same phenomena except for consciousness is dominated by the sense of the I where awareness doesn't have so much of the I mixed into it it's more of an open an open expansive uh, you know, feeling So it's just, you know, practice, practice, practice. And not only while you're meditating, but, you know, even out in the world, too. When you catch your mind, you know, just try to recall it. Oh, 
What aggregate is this? Okay. I mean, you don't have to say that, but it, you know, it helps in the beginning. Uh, and just to observe how the mind gets, especially when you're walking down the street, because the eyes always want to look, look at this, look at that. When people pass, you know, uh, or you know, looking at shopping and and so on, you know, going to the supermarket, you know, the mind is, you know, this all these perceptions, hundreds, thousands of them popping out because everything is different. So you go in the supermarket, right, and you're standing there, you know, just doing standing meditation, you know, looking at things and. And then, you know, you're just about ready to, you know, go out and pick up an object, you know, lifting, lifting, reaching, reaching. And all of a sudden, a hand comes in from this direction, somebody else, they grab the last box of Cheerios. <laughs> Emptiness. <laughs> so there's lots of fun and games that you can do with the Dhamma. We've got to make Dhamma fun. Dhamma has to be fun. Everybody thinks it's a drudgery. Uh, I have to always think about the aggregates. Is the supreme self of the Veda tradition in contrast with the no-self of the Buddhism, can both beliefs complement each other? Well, that's a, you know, a debate that scholars uh, probably, you know, would get into. But, uh, you know, the in the yogic Veda tradition, you know, the concept of cosmic consciousness or, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever else they call it, cosmic consciousness, uh, and so on. It's, or supreme self, of course, they call it Atman or uh, uh, Brahman and, and so on. I mean, in a sense that even that Atman or Brahman is no doubt a very exalted and uh, expansive and uh, state of mind, but uh, the Buddha coined the term anatta as a contrast to their, or the Hindu term atta, or atman, right? Uh, but there's also, there's jiva atman and para atman. Jiva atman means the individual ego. Para atman means beyond that. So, you know, a person could see that, you know, that sounds very much similar to the idea of the uh, anatta, where the ego fades away, but, you know, there's still something there. There's still, you know, nibbana exists, you know, it's a state that is. And so it's very easy to equate those. And uh, I myself wouldn't even get debates about people, let them debate it, and, uh, but, you know, uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily very far off, you know. And, but people have different experiences and they will interpret, even within the Hindu yogic tradition, there's different concepts about that because they personalize deities like Krishna and, and other types of deities. 
but it is complex. But uh, I wouldn't bother getting in debates with people about that and so on. You have your understanding and let other people argue about it. But I have a three-year-old son. Any tips for helping to raise a mindful child? Yes. Practice mindfulness yourself in front of the child. Because child just mimic the parents for, for, you know, usually when they're young, you know, they, they imitate the parents. And if they see you sitting quietly, uh, you know, on the floor, uh, uh, meditating every day, you know, and you come over and, you know, and play with you, but finally maybe they'll, they'll sit down and you can, why don't you sit down, you know, and depending on how old they are, three years old, maybe kind of young, but, uh, you know, tell them to sit down for, you know, 20 seconds and not to move or count their breaths or something. Uh, but mainly the parents have to set the example. If you want your children to, you know, to practice mindfulness or learn to meditate, they've got to see you doing it. Because uh, if they don't and you tell them to do it and you're not doing it, they're not going to do it, generally. So... Uh, that's the best uh, tips I would uh, give you. Uh, and of course, three years old, maybe a little bit uh, too young for a child to understand, but certainly by the time they're five or six, uh, you start uh, mentioning some things like tell them to pause and just uh, pause and take a few breaths. Actually, tell them, teaching them to take deep breaths will be wonderful because that's like a trick. You teach them to take, tell them, you know, Breathing is, you have to live, you have to take deep breaths to live. You know, or something good, the, the good benefits of deep breathing. So they'll start doing that, and that'll make them calm, because that's the effect of deep breathing. And so you kind of <laughs> indirectly calm them by telling them just to uh, take deep breaths. The doctor said, take some deep breaths. And then you, sh you know, show them how to do it. Or sit down with them. And just by doing that alone, we'll calm them down, to, you know, at least a little bit. And then once they're a little bit calming down, after the, the taking the deep breaths, like I've been, you know, having you do for you know, some time. How many people find that helpful when I told you to, you know, to stand there and do that breathing for even five or ten minutes and even talk you through it, you know, I mean, saying, follow the in-breath down to the end and then, and feel that pause and then the in-breath and you know probably if I hadn't have talked you through it you wouldn't have done it or you wouldn't have done it uh, very long or uh, so on and that's why I I do that uh, several times over to hopefully so that you'll actually see what a good thing it is and then make the effort to want to do it on your own I can't believe, I still can't believe why doctors don't teach people to do that. I mean, I can't believe it, you know. They're doctors, having sex. They're getting there? Taking a long time. 
You mentioned that a retreat of this length may not be long enough to produce deep insights. Are you referring to the stages of insight? How long of a retreat is needed for significant progress into deeper insights? Well, I meant the, the length of this retreat is probably enough, not enough to develop the, the, the consistency of mindfulness and concentration and the depth of that mindfulness and concentration to be able to see the crystal clear arising and vanishing of, uh, you know, different uh, mind moments. That usually takes a lot longer. I mean, you can get a general sense and a vague sense of it and, you know, be aware of many things coming and going, but when you actually see a, a crystal clear arising and vanishing, it shocks you because it's, it's so clear and kind of just jumps out of the blue. Uh, uh, it's that clear sometimes. Uh, and, and also to be able to sustain it uh, uh, or to the point where this, the sense of the self you know, starts dissolving or the feeling of the body dissolves. Some people may have some of that, but you know, uh, especially the sense of the, the self dissolving and experiencing that very uh, you know, vast type of uh, awareness without much of a sense of an eye or anything inside. Uh, so that usually takes more time because it depends on the, you know, the strength and the, and the consistency of maintaining that uh, in a present moment awareness. But how many of you noticed uh, progress since the first day until this day in, in kind of doing that? So unfortunately, uh, you know, because of the time limit, and this is the Vasa season, so actually I'm not supposed to be away from my monastery for more than seven days, so I had to, you know, make it only uh, six days. But like when I go to Germany, Germans are real good meditators. They they like to meditate, and uh, they demanded a two-week course. (laughs) They've been going there for 30 years teaching retreats at one place. And uh, usually it was 10-day courses, and uh, now they're wanting two-week courses because they, they, they see that the difference. So there's a big difference between a week in retreat and even a six-day retreat. And there's more of a difference on a 10-day retreat, and there's more of a difference on a two-week retreat, and even a one-month retreat. I mean, you know, IMS, they have three-month retreats even, and they're full because there's, you know, uh, people are wanting that, seeing the benefit of, keeping it going. Since I've been meditating, it seems the feeling tones of my experience have shifted uh, more to uh, neutral feelings rather than, you know, unpleasant ones or, you know, being disturbed by unpleasant ones, a more neutral feeling. Uh, How do I know this is truly equanimity? 
and that I'm not just more checked out in a kind of spiritual bypass. Okay, sit outside at 5.30 in the afternoon and let mosquitoes bite you. you know, I don't think you'll be spaced out and you can see if you have uh, equanimity or not. That's what I used to do in Sri Lanka, actually. Uh, So, yeah, it has to be, uh, you know, I mean, you should be able to know. You you can feel like, you know, let's say an ant is crawling on you and starting to bite you or a mosquito or maybe a... You know, a spider, you feel a spider crawling on your neck or something. You can feel all these fireworks going off in your mind and reactions. But uh, you have to start with more, you know, uh, milder types of unpleasant sensations, especially like a strong itches. Or sometimes, you know, you feel a even a little drop of water running down your head, and especially right in here, is a very sensitive area. You almost feel like fireworks are going off, and it like you know jolts your whole nervous system. Sometimes you know certain stinging or biting sensations. And of course, a lot of that is just automatic reaction, nervous system reaction. But uh, you, know, you just have to you know gauge yourself. I mean the the equanimity you'll still feel the sensation as being unpleasant but you're not tensing up about it and you're just you're relaxed through it and you just allow those unpleasant sensations to come through that's also equanimity Uh, but you can change what used to be a, a painful sensation you can change them to gradually become a, a a pleasant sensation, or what used to be a pleasant sensation, you can change it into what might be a, a neutral sensation, or even a, a painful sensation. Uh, that's called mastery of the mind when you're able to kind of uh, do that. But. <coughs> Like what you used to not like, you can change your mind about it and like it. Like I did with avocados, if any of you know that, my famous avocado story. (laughs) Uh, And other things. So, and like itches, itches are are wonderful. Itches are one of the best uh, meditation sensations. Because an itch is not really that painful. It's just an itch, right? It's unpleasant. But it's not going to kill you, and it's you know it's not really like a, a you know serious toothache or something, right? So you can learn to relax around them, and, and when you actually you know learn to you know kind of just just feel them and feel all the little sensations connected with that that itch, you know, and seeing the the, the mind kind of tensing up, but you you keep relaxing around it and. You know, when you gain good experience at that, you can actually enjoy it. You know, enjoy itches. Because you see how your mind is improving to, to, to tolerate them. And uh, it keeps you awake also. So they're good for that. 
Painful sensations are good, especially for people who have lots of sleepiness in meditation. Uh, and so, you know, having di feeling different pains and, and itches, it's it's, it's the great, uh, you know, meditation on the you know the aggregate of sensation and also perceptions, the aggregate of feelings and and perceptions. Because the mind is thinking, oh, this dirty fly, or this, you know, whatever it is, or I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get Nilambi knees or something, you know. And so you can just see the mind, you know, freaking out, being able to laugh at it, you know, just chuckle. Huh, look at this crazy mind just freaking out. Wow, cool. You know, rather than getting so serious and so on. I learn to laugh at yourself. Cosmic humor, the crazy, fickle mind. How important is it for spouses or partners to share a common belief system. Any advice? Well, you know, it probably would help compatibility and so on if, uh, you know, people had their common viewpoints and interests because then for there may not be so much conflict of interest when it comes to doing things, you know, if two people, you know, are like to meditate and like to go hear Dhamma talks and this and that, then, uh, you know, that's of course uh, can be a good thing because then both of you are practicing the Dhamma, then you, you can help each other because you know what the difficulties are in the other person and, and they know yours and you can you can help each other in that way. So it's uh, you know it's wonderful if if they had you know if they have if you have that. But uh, you know if not, it can cause problems, especially you know in the beginning because I've heard you know lots of people you know come and ask me questions and tell me stuff you know in their life, and you know that. One person may meditate, the other one may, may not or may not, you know, have much interest in the Dhamma, uh, but kind of just tolerates their practice uh, in the beginning, and especially in a new relationship, because, uh, you know, sometimes people may say, oh, yeah, you know, go ahead and meditate, that's okay. But later on, they, you know, uh, they may be holding something, you know, and, and your meditation may threaten them. Uh, because they're afraid you might wind up becoming a monk or not, <laughs> or uh, you may lose interest in things they want to do. So uh, you know there can there's there's lots of problems that have developed uh, in in these kind of issues between uh, partners or spouses who don't uh, you know meditate, or there could be you know like. In, in, in a Buddhist country, like for Buddhists, you know, uh, one they both they both might be Buddhists, but one may be a nominal Buddhist, another one may be into meditation, 
but at least because the one, the one is a nominal Buddhist, they know that meditation is good, so they're, they're apt to at least tolerate their spouse, uh, you know, meditating, uh, and, and so on. But the best, the best uh, kind of, uh, you know, test or benefit is that, you know, some spouses will tell the other one to go, go to retreat. Because they know when they come back from a retreat, they're much nicer. <laughs> you know, they're, they're more calm and re- relaxed. So even though they m- might not, you know, be a, a Buddhist or meditate, they know that at least well when he goes on retreat or she and they come back, you know, at least for a week or so, they're a little bit more tolerable, you know, and, and so on. So they may encourage their the person to, to go on retreats for that reason. Honey, I think it's time for a retreat. <laughs> How can meditation help with physical pain such as cancer pain? Well, probably you would have to be highly developed in concentration to be able to kind of, you know, endure the kind of pains associated with these very, you know, difficult, uh, painful types of uh, diseases. Uh, So it, it, you know, but of course being mindful of it is certainly a, a good first step that you're mindful of the pain and you <clears throat> try to have metta to the in the body and by practicing meditation you at least you can might be able to tolerate a little bit uh, more but uh, still in those severe types of things then uh, you know it depends on the individual but probably uh, unless you attain formless jhana where you you know lose all feeling or consciousness of your body then you you know you could probably tolerate it for several hours at a time when you're in a, that kind of jhanic especially formless jhanic state uh, where there's no more body at all uh, with the mind and the buddha did that you know but the buddha could go in and stay in those formless jhanic states for you know, days, you know, several days at a time if you wanted to. But the average person is not going to be able to do that. So, uh, yeah, you know, this is difficult. But anyway, you know, it can help, but I'm, you know, not saying it's going to be a, you know, that person would be able to totally do without some kind of uh, medication on it. Oh, yeah. I think this is the question from that was left over from last night.
Would you please elaborate further on balancing vipassana and samatha practice and how the two complement one another? And I think I did uh, talk about that today uh, when I was talking about the right mindfulness and right concentration. Uh, in meditation, if you have too much samadhi, that means the mind get too quiet, then either the, the person could get attached to that quietness or they could also kind of just uh, space out or if you get, the mind gets too quiet they could kind of just yeah, nod out or even go to sleep uh, or at least getting too uh, quiet then again you, you attachment to just wanting to be quiet and feeling some blissful feeling uh, may be there uh, so you have to kind of wake it up by, you know, paying more attention to other things. Otherwise, if you just sit there in some, you know, quiet space, as I've already mentioned, okay, that might be fine and dandy, but you're not really making progress in, uh, you know, transforming your sankharas and, and, and dealing with pains and other types of, of distractions, like the jack-in-the-box thing I was mentioning. Uh, but if you have too much mindfulness and you're aware of too many things and not enough concentration, then the mind can get too much excited and, uh, and kind of, uh, you know, also kind of be off and get too distracted. So therefore they have to be uh, balanced uh, by the, the the vipassana helps you to stay more awake so you don't get lost into too much uh, stillness or quietness but the the calmness a certain amount of calmness will help to uh, keep the mind uh, tempered and uh, also keep it from uh, getting too distracted that's why i always mention Ideally, to keep that contact with the breathing. You develop the mindfulness of breathing, but especially here, because when you're feeling the sensation here, you, you get into too much extreme uh, quietness and you tend to not feel much other, other things. And people get attached to that. Or you see a little nimitta and a light and, and you want to try to hold on to that and focus on that. Or, so, But when you're... Uh, Developing the, the the awareness of the breathing in this area, you don't get drawn into so much quietness, but you do get concentration because it's it's still in a very limited area. But it helps you to stay awake enough that you can notice other things. But that continuous connection to the breath, kind of in the background. Even if it's just there, you know, 75% or 80% of the time, you're, you know, you're kind of feeling in the breaths in between. That'll hold the, the mind calm enough to where it, it can practice the moment-to-moment -moment attention without getting overwhelmed by the speed when you build up the speed of uh, perception. You know, this was an in, uh, experience I had when I was 
when I was in the army, you know, when I was just uh, you know, 20 years old, 21 years old, even in Vietnam, I had some LSD sent over to me because a lot of the GIs were taking drugs. And, uh, and they had a lot of good hashish and Thai Buddha grass. And so we were always stoned, you know, just to get by. <laughs> and, uh, but one, anyway, one time I had taken this LSD and I was sitting in my room and all of a sudden I got this, you know, this barrage of images, thoughts and images coming at me like a freight train barreling down at me, which was a Nietzsche. And if, I were, if I would have had that now, I would, it would be a perfect uh, Nietzsche sanya because these images were just flashing by like that, but like they were barreling right down on me like a kaleidoscope. You know what a kaleidoscope is, right? That, and I freaked out because I, I didn't know how to handle it. I thought I was going mad. And I had to tell somebody to come here, pour a bucket of water on my head. You know, I got to come down because I thought I was going to lose my mind. Yeah. So, you know, so in that sense, I didn't have any samatha, you know, to, to temper that. That's a danger, of, you know, with people that take drugs and drug experiences. They don't know how to handle these types of things, experiences that come to them, and they wind up freaking out or they're doing, doing some other things, jumping off a building because they think they can fly and all that. What is the role of Sankara? in the contact, feeling, craving process. Can you explain? Uh, the sankara is basically is the becoming. So it's craving, grasping, and becoming. The grasping and becoming are the sankara. Actually, I was, if there's time, I was going to touch on that tomorrow. But basically, uh, it's not even context, it's just basically craving, grasping, and becoming. These are the, what's called the karmic kamabhava process. And so the feeling triggers off the, the craving, either to craving to get away from a painful feeling or the craving to hold on to a pleasant feeling. So that initial uh, craving is just that initial desire. But then... And if you have mindfulness, you can just be aware of that, oh, desire, desire, and maybe it'll just vanish, and you won't react to it. But if you're slow, then the craving turns into grasping. And grasping means the continual, the thinking about the object. The craving is just the initial gut reaction, the, the, the reaction of uh, wanting to get rid of something or, or the wanting to get away from it. It might not even involve much thought at all. But the grasping is in thinking about it. You start thinking about it. Yes, I have to have this object. You know, how am I going to get it? Planning, scheming, all that's part of grasping. Planning, scheming, conniving, figuring out what you're going to do. And then it comes to the point of you've got to make a decision. Are you going to do it or not? Are you going to scratch that itch or just let it be? 
And that's the sankara. If you give in and you scratch the itch, that's the sankara. But the sankara is also all those thoughts connected with the grasping. So both grasping and becoming in the wheel of dependent origination, that's really the, the, the sankaras are taking their, that's, that's where they manifest themselves. And actually, I usually give a whole talk about that subject, uh, but uh, there probably won't be time tomorrow about it. But basically, the you know, craving is not that bad. Don't worry so much about craving. Craving is just the initial urge to, you know, want to scratch, or the initial urge to, you know, on a hot day to, to go or drink a Coca-Cola or something. And if you have good mindfulness, you can you know, kind of contemplate, well, it's just not that bad. Okay, I'll just watch it. And you kind of just, you know, observe it and it vanishes. Or you say, well, you know, there's no Cokes anyway, never mind. And you, you forget about it. So craving by itself is not a big deal. It's the grasping. You grasp the idea, yes, I have to have it. I'm going to die without that. My life depends on that. And then all the planning, scheming, and conniving. How are you going to you know, get that? That's where you have to apply mindfulness. And that's where you can turn the tide. Is in applying all of your Dhammic knowledge, your wisdom, to try to uh, weaken that grasping. And so it doesn't lead to becoming. Because the grasping leads up to the point of you're going to decide. You, did, you contemplated all the pros and cons. And if you have enough wisdom, hopefully you, will, you won't do, especially the negative action, the sankara. But if you don't and you give in and, you know, you know to change the posture or itch the scratch or, or whatever else it, it may be, or... Uh, then uh, you you increase the the strength of that sankara. So really, it's the what you can do in vip, you know in vipassana meditation. Basically, we're contemplating those three things: craving, grasping, and becoming. You can't do anything about feeling and contact much, because as soon as the feeling comes up, there's already craving, normally, and you've got to be aware of 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 that and the grasping about contemplating what you're going to do about this uh, unpleasant feeling. You can't prevent feelings come. You can't prevent contact from coming. Because the senses are always open and it's going to come. You have no control over that, for the most part. Uh, and you don't have control over the feelings arise. And you don't have the control over the craving arise. Until you're at least uh, anagami. That means the third stage of enlightenment is only when craving has been totally eliminated. So don't worry about it too much. People think, oh my God, I've got to get rid of the craving. How can I become a Buddhist? This is crazy. No, no, no. So don't worry about it. Worry about grasping. That's what we pay attention to. And the becoming. So that's the critical time. The shift between grasping and but the shift between craving where it turns into grasping, and if you're too late, then you have the last chance 
where grasping turns into becoming because that's where the karma, the, the, the heavy type of karmic comes when you actually do the action. Thinking about it is a kind of karma too, but it's the, the actual action. You could think about telling a lie. Maybe you're thinking about it. Should I tell the lie or not? Should I cheat on my income tax or not, right? Worrying about that and then thinking about all, all these things. And then you make a decision to do it. You're going to do it or not do it. So that's where we pay attention to. Don't think about getting rid of all your craving and desires. You mitigate them. You know, you keep them in check. And uh, you know, some de- not all desires are necessarily bad. The simple ones, the simple things for life, you know, uh, and so on. Uh, you know, it's like the middle path. Don't deny yourself any type of little desire or creature come from. But you have to be selective about it. You know. And uh, you know, you know, keep some that are not really harming anybody or harming yourself too much. Now, if you want to put a little sugar in your coffee or you want, want to drink Starbucks coffee instead of Nescafe, okay, you know, no big deal, right? If you have the money to buy it, it's okay. But the main thing is keeping these things in check and not letting them, you know, get out of uh, proportion, you know, until well, it becomes an obsession. And then it starts interfering with, you know, your other things. If karma moves forward across lifetimes, why does it seem that we are always born into ignorance? Because the ignorance is carried over from lifetime to lifetime. When you die, the ignorance that you still have in your mind, that means you're self-centered, uh, clinging and your, you know, your sankaras of attachment and aversion and other things, uh, you know, they're carried over onto the, in the next life. And then if you keep practicing ignorance in the next life, it just keeps rolling over, over and over, over until at some point you wake up, you hear the Dhamma, and you contemplate it, and you say, enough is enough. You're fed up with ignorance because it pushes and bullies you around to doing things that causes you suffering. This is the whole thing about that verse that I chant after meditation. You know, All things are impermanent. When one sees this with the eye of wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with suffering. You become disenchanted with it. You become disenchanted with ignorance. It keeps pushing and bullying you around to do these unskillful karmic actions and to get more addicted to pleasure and pain uh, reactions and keeps the ego, you know, imprisoned by the ego. So that there's an important word called nibida. It means becoming disillusioned by that or... Uh, being uh, wearied by all this, you know, this stuff that is going on in your mind. And that's when people, you know, 
then start getting interested in, in trying to do something about it in terms of you know, Dhamma, uh, learning to meditate. But some people like that ignorance, you know, and they're just, you know, they don't know any other way, and, you know, they, so, you know, they, even though it's suffering, they keep on just, you know, staying caught in that wheel of uh, suffering. So, it's only that point where something wakes up in you and we ne you can never tell when that's going to happen. Like with me, I gave you that example of myself, right? When I was following the hippie trail and staying stoned on drugs and you know, getting put in prison in Afghanistan. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. I knew I wanted to get off drugs, but I, I didn't know. And then, you know, I went to Sarnath and started to remember what the Buddhists say about meditation and and so on, and then this guy comes to me and starts talking about meditation, and that just opened up something, you know, just snapped something inside. So you know, that can happen to anybody, really. But you never know when that that would happen to you. But you have to be open, you know, to if something presents itself, to be open to, you know, want to try something. But if you're restrained by, you know, particular beliefs that say, no, no, that, you know, I shouldn't do that because that's another religion or this and that. I mean, you know, unfortunately, that's, uh, okay. So, oh, no, that's not a question. Okay. So, take a deep breath. Come back and touch base with 